to Romans chapter 5, Romans chapter 5, and the verses that we'll cover tonight will be verses 6 through 8, but since we've only had two occasions to study the book of Romans in the last two months, one was in November, the first of November, one was in December, actually the first week of December, so it's been a full month since we've been in this book, um, I want to remind us tonight of where we've been. If you've forgotten where we've been, don't feel bad, I had to review myself to see where we were. Uh, I want to also make a quick note to those of you that are listening to this on tape or through the website, you might you might choose to skip to the next lesson um, as we're dealing with a problem of a gap in time here as we do this live, but if you're listening from one day to the next, much of what you hear on this lesson will be uh, a review of what you just heard on the lesson before, but that's up to you if you'd like to, to review. To, to, again, let you know where we've been in the book of Romans, in the first 17 verses, Paul gives a rather extended introduction to the book, primarily because I don't believe he had been there before, and he's introducing not only himself, but then he finally introduces his topic in verses 16 and 17, which is justification by faith. And then in verses 18 of chapter 1 through verse 20 of chapter 3, Paul expounds on the need for justification, first to the immoralist, then to the moralist, who condemns the immoralist, but does the same things that the moralist does. Thirdly, to the Jew, who although they had the oracles of God, they rejected the very revelation that they had been privileged to have. Finally, Paul says, all are under sin. And he says, all have sinned and fallen short, or continue to fall short of the glory of God. Then in verses 21 through 31 of chapter 3, Paul speaks of the subject of justification again, justification being defined as a right standing before God. He says it's obtained by faith in Jesus Christ apart from works. I want you to note, because this is a very big issue in our culture today, and by the way, if we can't handle the cultural issues, we're, in, we're going to end up speaking to ourselves. We're going to end up having a, a, a very brief conversation only within the family, and that's not what we're called to do. We are called to be able to minister to the culture that we live in. And this is a big issue in our culture today, this whole issue of faith and faith. Just have faith. And it doesn't seem like it matters what you have faith in. Biblically, it matters tremendously. It's not faith that saves. God saves on the basis of our faith, but that faith needs to be in a worthy object. And that worthy object is Jesus Christ, the trustworthy object, Jesus Christ. So it's by faith in Jesus Christ, apart from works. Then in chapter 4, Paul uses Abraham and to a lesser degree David as examples of men who were justified by faith apart from works. Now we begin chapter 5. And having studied the need for justification and the fact that justification is obtained by faith alone in Christ alone, we, as we begin chapter 5, at least in the first 11 verses, Consider the certainty of our justification. Now, just so you might know, in Romans is a book that a lot has been written about over the history of the church. I understand why. It's certainly one of the most, if not the most, theological book in the scriptures. And so there's a great deal of difference of opinion how we divide this book up. Some people, some, some theologians, some very good scholars, see a major division in the book between chapters 4 and 5. Others see a major division in the book between chapter 5, verse 11, and then the reigning of the chapter, and then chapter 6, 7, and 8. I, however, 
see the major division of the book coming between chapters 5 and 6, the next major division. So we're gonna, we'll, we will flow through and then we'll talk about the divisions, the other divisions when we get there. But in these 11 verses, at least the first 11 verses of chapter 5, Paul discusses the idea of our justification. So we have it by grace through faith. How long is it going to last? Is this something that's permanent? Or is this something that's going to go away as soon as I sin? If I'm suffering, should I interpret that to mean that I no longer have justification? There are people who teach that, by the way. Well, Paul will clear these up. Does justification hold up under all the circumstances of life? If I sin, will I lose justification and face wrath? Well, Paul will assert that even if I sin, and I will, and so will you, I retain my right standing before God and will not face the wrath of God. The believer will not face the wrath of God. Now, the unbeliever will. But if you're justified, you will not. Justification by grace through faith. So, in answer to the question, will this justification survive this life? Paul answers in two ways. In the first five verses of chapter 11, remember he answered negatively. Even though I experience tribulation, it is designed to strengthen me, not destroy me. It is designed to result in hope, not despair. Paul says, I remain justified in spite of the fact that I'm suffering. I know when it comes to this, I'm preaching to the choir. But a minute ago I said we need to be able to minister to our culture. Actually, we need to be able to minister even to the Christian culture. And there are a great number of Christians who don't agree with that. They see suffering as a sign that something's going wrong in your life. Perhaps you're out of fellowship with God. Uh, perhaps you're not saved at all. Well, Paul doesn't look at it that way. There is, there is a category of suffering. I would call it discipline for those who are walking out of fellowship with God to get us back into fellowship. But the category suffering itself does not necessarily mean that you're doing anything wrong. And I hope... I really hope that nobody in this church would ever go to someone and imply that because you're suffering, there must be some sin in your life and we need to sit down and figure out what it is. Please don't ever do that. Or if, any, if you ever do, please don't let me find out about it. Because pastorally, I would have to correct that. Because I think that's one of the most cruel things that you can possibly do, is just assume that someone has sinned because their husband passed away. Or because their wife has cancer. Don't do that. In verses 6 through 11, Paul answers the question, uh, will this justification survive this life? Positively. He says, we were justified when we were sinners. Actually, when we were enemies of God, he'll say in verse 10. Now that we're family, he will keep us justified. Read along with me if you've got your Bibles open. In Romans chapter 5, the first two verses. Therefore, having been justified by faith... We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in hope of the glory of God. Paul, by beginning this chapter, therefore, he's looking back on what he has already taught in the first four chapters. And he's saying, on the basis of what I've just taught you in the last four chapters, having been justified, with, by, faith, having been justified by faith, he says, we have peace with God. We define this peace in this early part of the chapter as reconciliation, although the term reconciliation won't come up until later in the chapter. 
But the concept of reconciliation comes up in the very first verse. Because of our justification, we have an objective peace with God instead of being at war with God. Now, maybe you, don't, you didn't picture yourself as being the enemy of God or even at war with God before you came to faith in Christ, but you were. You were, would you, would you just cry down? You were the enemy of God, and I know that's not a pretty picture to paint, but that's the reality of it. The Greek term irene means a set of favorable circumstances involving peace and tranquility. The condition that we found ourselves in before the Lord justified us was not a positive one. It was certainly not a good one. In Romans 1.18, God revealed his wrath against us. We stored up wrath for us. Uh, we stored up wrath for the day of wrath. That's Romans two five. God has given us up to self destruct. Romans one twenty four twenty six and twenty eight. We were worthy of the second death. Romans one thirty two. We were inexcusable. Romans two one. We were all under sin. Romans three nine and Romans three twenty three. Romans five eight. We were guilty. In the eyes of the divine courtroom, that's Romans 3:19. These seven points should make it clear to anybody that's listening carefully that we were enemies of God. We were not neutral. We weren't really good folks. We were the enemies of God before we were justified. There existed a state of hostility. Not because God wanted it that way, not because we were designed to be that way. We were designed... We were created in the image of God to have eternal fellowship with him. But man pursued his own rebellious way, and so that fellowship was broken. Prior to the moment of justification, man was then hostile toward God. But now, after justification, a truce has been declared so that we have peace. God and believers are reconciled, meaning we are no longer enemies. Where there had been war, there is now a state of peace, regardless of how you might feel. Have you ever had someone, a friend, a relative, come to you and say, I don't really feel saved anymore? I, I've had plenty of people tell me that. I wonder how you might answer them. I hope you're equipped to answer them. It doesn't matter how you feel. You're, you were justified by grace through faith. You're no longer at war with God. You've been reconciled. You have Peace with God, positionally. Now, you may feel really lousy because you're walking out of fellowship with God, but you haven't lost your salvation. There are, when it comes to reconciliation, there's two sides to this coin. First, the objective side, I would call it the objective side, the potential which Christ accomplished for all mankind. And the subjective side by which we actually become reconciled to God. The first side, the objective side, might be called by theologians the doctrine of unlimited atonement, meaning that on the, Christ, on the cross, Jesus Christ paid the penalty for all the sins that have ever been committed, past, present, and future. People hadn't even lived yet, assuming that he tarries and doesn't come, and even the sins of those in the tribulation, and in the millennium. Jesus paid the sins for all, but that doesn't mean all are saved. There was a very fine lady who used to go to our church that used to argue with me about that. Just since Jesus Christ died for all, then all must be saved. Well, that's a misunderstanding of the doctrine of unlimited atonement. He made salvation possible for all, but not all are saved. You're not saved until you take advantage 
of that offer. And by the way, I, I, I shouldn't have to say, but, but I will, just in case. Recently, at one of the Sunday services, a man came to me afterwards, and, and he had a about a five-step program for salvation that he was presenting to me after the after the service was over, and I and I so appreciated talking to him. But I want you to know, there's not a five-step program. We had we had to get that clear. There is one step that Paul gives for justification, and I, I asked him how how in light of Romans chapter three, for example, how you could come up with five steps, and. Um, that wasn't a passage that I, I don't think he had considered, but I want you to consider it. One step. Salvation is by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. The whole world is reconciled to God in the sense of being made savable by Christ, but not in the sense of being saved. So reconciliation has two, two sides of that coin. One's potential, and then one is actual. Also, whenever we speak of the doctrine of reconciliation... It's important to remember that God is never said to be reconciled to us. We are reconciled to God. You might think that's a fine theological point, but it's a very practical theological point. I might have done something to wrong you. You might have done something to wrong me. But in this reconciliation process, God never did anything to wrong us. We need to be reconciled to him. We're the ones that strayed and moved off the path, not him. So we never say that God is reconciled to us. He's the agent of reconciliation. But he didn't do anything wrong. And I hope you can see the very practical aspect of that. One of the most practical aspects I can possibly bring before you today is when people say they get angry with God. Well, to become angry with God is to imply that he did something wrong. At least in your eyes, he did something wrong. Otherwise, you wouldn't be angry with him. Don't do that. Positionally, God never does anything wrong. We are reconciled to him. And if you find yourself being angry with God, go back to some private place and confess that as a sin. Because you're implying that he is not omnibenevolent, certainly not all good. Look at verse 3. And not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations. Paul, are you sure you meant to say that? We exult in our tribulations. Most of us would like to try to avoid those tribulations. We go 100 miles out of the way to avoid suffering and tribulations. Well, no, what he said is what he meant. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations. Why? Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character. And proven character, hope. There is nothing inconsistent about the believer enjoying the reconciliation we have with God, the peace that we have with God, while at the same time facing illness, persecution, and difficulties of all kinds. That is not inconsistent with our reconciliation. We're still at peace with God. All we have to do is, is go back and look through the New Testament accounts of the journeys of Paul, the missionary journeys of Paul, and see how many things that we would consider to be tribulations that occurred in his life. Did it mean that he was doing something wrong? No. Make a noise. God forbid. He wasn't doing anything wrong. He was, he was right in the middle of God's plan for his life. There's nothing inconsistent about the believer enjoying the reconciliation we have with God while at the same time facing illness, persecution, and difficulties of all kinds. Paul says, tribulation, troubles, trials are designed to strengthen me, not destroy me. It's designed to result in hope, not in despair. 
it does not cancel the reconciliation that we have with God. Troubles don't remove reconciliation, nor are they an indicator that reconciliation has been removed. Now, if you happen to be talking with someone that, that asserts the theology that troubles indicate that a person has lost their salvation or perhaps they were never saved at all, now where are you going to go to lovingly and gently direct them back onto the path of the truth? Right here. This is where you're going to go to help someone out. Now, I know maybe you already know this. But there's a difference between knowing it right now as you sit here and being able to defend it when the heat gets turned up. Calmly. Because the, no, the more you really know your subject well, the more calm you'll be able to be, the more lovingly you'll be able to defend it. The reason why we can reasonably rejoice in troubles is because we know, Paul says, that tribulation brings endurance. And in turn, endurance brings a tested or a proven character, with the end result being hope. We know that even though troubles come, we have not lost our justification. We have not lost our peace with God. No matter what the situation brings, we have a future in heaven with God. Suffering, then, rather than weakening our hope, strengthens our certainty in that hope. I love the Greek word for hope. It's elpis. Elpis means a confident expectation. That confident expectation will be stronger if the object of our faith is strong. We hear a lot today about self-confidence. If you're self-confident, that's good. And if you lack self-confidence... In the eyes of many, that's a psychological illness, a mental malady. But self-confidence will only carry you so far. And the more honest you are with yourself, the more you know that if you're trusting yourself for the answers to life's problems, you're in really big trouble. I love G.K. Chesterton. He wrote a book called Orthodoxy back in 1908. You may have heard of uh, Chesterton. He was very influential in the lives of many people, not the least of which was C.S. Lewis. And in, the, in his book, Orthodoxy, speaking about this subject of who we're going to trust, who we have confidence in, he says this. Listen carefully. He says, and by the way, Chesterton is, was a humorist as well as a, an apologist for the faith and a theologian. I, I love the way he turns a phrase. He says, Thoroughly worldly people never understand even the world. They rely altogether on a few cynical maxims which are not true. Once I remember walking with a prosperous publisher who made a remark which I had often heard before. It is, indeed, almost a motto of the modern world. Yet I had heard it once too often, and I suddenly saw that there was nothing in it. The publisher said of somebody... That man will get on. He believes in himself. And I remember that as I lifted my eye and my head to listen, my eye caught an omnibus on which was written Hanwell. Now, Hanwell is an insane asylum that's located right outside of London, where he was at the time. I said to him, Shall I tell you where the men are 
who believe most in themselves? For I can tell you, I know of men who believe in themselves more colossally than Napoleon or Caesar. I know where flames the fixed star of certainty and success. I can guide you to the thrones of the supermen. The men who really believe in themselves are all in lunatic asylums. I love that. Because to truly place all your confidence in yourself, you've got to be incredibly dishonest with yourself. That's the mental illness. Not the person who says, yes, God gave me certain abilities. I appreciate those abilities. I pray that God the Holy Spirit would work through me to use those abilities to God's glory. That's not... Uh, that's not mental illness. Recognizing that one has a weakness, that I'm not able to save myself, that I cannot be the final integration point for everything that I do, that's not illness. Thinking that you are is an illness. So Chesterton's point is that those whose ultimate reference point in life is themselves have a degree of dishonesty that is essentially insane. You can enjoy life in the midst of tribulations knowing how it all turns out. I know from time to time we have some pretty rough days because we live in a fallen world. There's sickness, there's illness, there's death, there's interpersonal, there are interpersonal problems that just tear us apart. But we know how it's all going to turn out. No matter how difficult it is for you today, you can know that there will be a day when it's all going to be perfect. That's what I mean by confident expectation. You don't just have to hope in the English sense of the word. Well, I hope that in the future something's going to work out well for me. The Bible promises you that in the future something's going to work out well with you. It's all going to work out well with you. Paul goes on to say, And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given us. When we studied this passage, I used a, an example and had a, a table sitting here. You didn't see that I had a towel underneath, but I had a glass of water. You remember that? And we said we took a picture of water and poured it into that glass until it overflowed. You see, what's being poured into the glass in this passage is not the Holy Spirit. Some people might think, well, you're, you're just you're overflowing with the Holy Spirit. That's not what the passage says. It says the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit's the one with the pitcher that's, that's filling up that glass to overflowing with what? With the love of God. Not only then do we have an objective basis for our hope, knowledge, Paul's already talked about that, but we also have a subjective basis for our confident expectation. And, and let me add, for those of you, for those objective people out here, <laughs> There's nothing wrong with a subjective basis for our hope. We have an objective basis. There, there are actually two in this passage. We'll come up to, to the second one in just a minute. But there's nothing wrong with feeling the fact that God loves you. And that's what's going on in this passage. The, the actual phrase here, the love of God, some people interpret that to mean the love that we have for God. But I believe it's more properly interpreted as what's called in, by Greek grammarians a subjective genitive, meaning it's God's love that he has for us. The verb here signifies something that's poured out that is abundant. It's extravagant. 
God's love has been poured out into our hearts in the past, and God's love is now within us. And this love is conveyed to the sensations by the Holy Spirit who resides in every believer. So not only do we have an objective witness to this hope, we have a subjective witness. One is objective, is coming from the outside in. But we also have a subjective witness coming from the inside out. I don't apologize for that, not for one minute. That's the very word of God. God wants you to feel that he loves you. Now, sometimes you might not. If you're walking out of fellowship, you may not feel that God loves you, but he does. The solution is get back into fellowship and experience the love of God that he has for you. Sometimes when people are hurting, I don't know about you, but I'll, I'll stop and pray for them especially people who may have a loved one that has recently gone to heaven, and I'll pray something like this. Father, please comfort them. Please allow them to experience your love. Fill them up. Allow them to, to experience your presence with them today. Now, surely, God is omnipresent. He is with them. But we don't always experience that because we get our eyes so focused on the problem that we're having, the hurt that we feel, that we forget that God loves us. Sometimes we think that nobody loves us. Ever felt that way? You know, I'm having a pity party. Oh, poor me. Nobody loves me. Yes, somebody does. Yes, somebody does. And if we're walking in fellowship with God, we'll feel that. So we have an objective basis for our hope. We have a subjective basis for our hope. The idea is that the Holy Spirit makes us feel the presence of God's love. Now, as we look at the verses 6 through 8, for while we were still helpless at the right time Christ died for the ungodly for one will hardly die for a righteous man though perhaps for the good man someone would even dare to die but God demonstrates notice the present tense of that verb God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us so remember in the first five verses Paul answers the question, will justification survive this life? Remember, he answers it negatively, or from the negative viewpoint, even though I experience tribulation. Tribulation is designed to strengthen me, not destroy me. It's designed to result in hope, not despair. I remain justified in spite of suffering. Now, in verses 6 through 11, we'll only cover three of these verses tonight. But Paul answers the question positively. We were justified when we were sinners. And Paul takes it even further. We were justified when we were God's enemies. Now that we're family, he will keep us justified. Verses 6 through 8 form a singular argument that demonstrates the abundant and absolute nature of God's love for us. I might summarize Paul's argument this way in these three points. First, human love at best will motivate a person to give his or her life for a truly good person. Paul says that in verse 7. Second, Christ, sent by God the Father, died not for righteous people or even for good people, but for rebellious and undeserving people. That's verse 6. And then in verse 8, therefore God's love is far greater in its magnitude and independability than even the greatest of human love. This argument serves not only to provide evidence for the love of God, 
by tracing the love that we experience in our hearts all the way back to its source. You see what's being done? The love of God, the, the kind of love God has for us is, is poured out in our hearts. Now Paul tells us the quality of that love. Sometimes we make a mistake, make the mistake, of superimposing our own love on the love of God. My love is subjective, and it's inconsistent, and it's imperfect. But God's love is objective, it's consistent, and it's perfect. It's still love. It's not something that's totally other than love. Otherwise, the scriptures wouldn't use the word love for it. So it's something, it's something like ours, but to, to a degree of perfection that's so much higher than ours that we have to understand that when this love is poured out in our heart, it's not the, the weak kind of love that we have. It's a perfect love. Verse 6 is a little bit complex in its original word order, but it could be understood this way. For while we were still weak, at just the right time, Christ died for godless people. One quick note about the Greek word order and a little bit about the importance of it. The term Christos in verse 6, which is toward the end of the English translation, is actually very close to the beginning of the Greek sentence. And so if I was to, to take that into account, and sometimes that's very important, sometimes it's not. Here I believe it is significant. Sometimes when the Greeks wanted to emphasize something, they, they moved it closer to the first part of the verse. They had the freedom to do that. But if I was to take that into account, I might translate this, for Christ, while we were yet helpless, at the right time, died for the ungodly. Now, do you see why I might even bring that up? The emphasis here is on Christ and who he is and what kind of love he has as opposed to what normal human love would be, even very virtuous human love. So verse 6 tells us, At the perfect time in history, Christ came and died for helpless, ungodly sinners. That's me, and that's you. Before we run off and, and just escape that fact, we need to remember from whence we came. We love to talk about grace, you know, God's riches at Christ's expense, unmerited favor, everything that God's free to do for us on the basis of the finished work of Christ on the cross. But there is this nagging pride that most believers have, most, not all, that when God saved me, he didn't have to work quite as hard as he did to save somebody else. That's not grace. We need to understand, we are the ones being talked about here. We were the helpless, ungodly sinners. That's the solution that uh, it was that Newton came to. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Could you write that? Would you write that? Would you be willing to put that down in writing to be sung by generations and generations of people? And we can look back and say, yeah, he was a wretch. Was he a slave trader? He was a really bad guy. But if you don't insert yourself into the wretch phrase, you'll never really appreciate the grace of God. Don't be afraid to do that. We were all enemies of God 
before we came to Christ. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though for perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. I don't see a big I don't see that Paul is making a big difference here between the righteous man and the good man. Some do. I don't really see that, that that's what he's doing here. I believe that they're essentially synonymous. The main point of this verse, though, is clear. Paul highlights the love of God manifested in the cross of Christ by reminding us of the pinnacle, or that the pinnacle of human love, is the giving of one's life for a person that we're close to. The, the highest expression of my love is going to be if, if I was to give my life for, say, my wife or my child or for you or for any one of my friends. Whereas God's expression was to send his son to die for people that were his enemies. We have it in us to give our lives for those that we feel worthy of that sacrifice. But Christ gave his life for those who were his enemies. Now in verse 8 of chapter 5, which is perhaps at least one of the two or three best known verses in all of this, uh, all of Paul's writing to the Romans, certainly one of my favorite verses in the book, he says, but God demonstrates. Now he's contrasting the type of love that human beings have, even in its most noble, virtuous state. But God, on the other hand, this is the type of love he has. He demonstrates, and by the way, he doesn't just talk about love. He demonstrates love. Most people aren't interested in somebody telling you that they love you. Uh, that's, that's nice, but they would much prefer that you demonstrate that you love them. Tell them every now and then is good too, isn't it? But don't just tell them and not demonstrate it. They come to think of you as a hypocrite, somebody that's not really totally truthful. God's not that way, though. He demonstrates, and also notice that this is a present tense verb. This is a continuing demonstration for us. While we're probably in the middle of these tribulations, remember that this is the context. His own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He's contrasting the love that we have with his own love. The contrast is to the very best of human love, with the love that God has. The verb, sunistami, means to cause something to be known by action, not just by verbiage. You know, you've heard the phrase, talk is cheap, especially when it comes to love. Talk's really cheap. God doesn't just tell us that he loves us. He demonstrates it. Now, this is a past action Christ died for us in the past, but this is a present tense demonstration of that action. Occasionally, again, people will come to me and say, God doesn't love me at all, and I say, how could you say that? Well, because I didn't get the job that I was after. You know, I, I didn't get the home that I was after. I, things seem to be going downhill for me. I'm, I, everything seems to be going poorly. I've just been to the doctor. I've been diagnosed with a horrible disease. God must not love me anymore. And I said, no, wait a minute. There is a current right now today way that you can know that God loves you. And it's something that happened in the past. You see the distinction? The event happened in the past. But the demonstration is valid for today, right now. And the way that this Greek sentence reads, it'll also be valid for tomorrow morning when you wake up. And you may wonder the same thing. Yes, God continually demonstrates that he loves you because of what he did in the past. How many times, let's be honest as we close this out today, how many times does God have to send his son and have him 
bear the penalty for our sins in a brutal way. How many times does he have to do that before we get the point that he loves us? Once. I hope it's once for you. For the Apostle Paul it was. The love demonstrated on the cross in the past, at a point in history, becomes a perpetual reminder that God loves us now. Should you ever doubt the fact that God loves you, look back to what he's already done for you. So, what Paul's saying here is there's a connection or a unity between the love that God demonstrated in the past and the subjective feeling that the Spirit of God pours out in our hearts even presently. There's a consistency there. There's a unity there. Okay. Well, next week, we'll take a look at verses 9 through 11.